Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinema Faith Podcast for January 2023. I'm your host, Jonathan Butrin, and I'm joined once again by my Italian friend, Tim Nelson. Tim, it's time to make everyone drool with jealousy. You just got back from Italy, did you not? It's true. I hope they're drooling right now. They are. How dare you? How dare you? How was your Italian extravaganza? Fill us in on some details. We went to Florence and Rome. My uh, wife's boss kind of like tour guided the whole thing. And we ate some incredible food and saw all the Renaissance art and then all the Roman stuff too. So it was pretty cool, man. I don't know what to tell you. It's a once in a lifetime deal. So we were really, really cool to see all that. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad. That sounds like a great trip. I'm happy you could do it. Like you said, once in a lifetime. I mean, that's it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It was very cool. I'm very thankful I got to go. I can't wait to go to Italy someday. I'm going to do the whole European thing where basically want to like see my last kid off to college and then immediately get in a airport shuttle and go to Europe. That's basically the plan. Like you're goodbye. After you've paid for a whole lot of airport college. <laughs> yeah, right? You're going to go on a grand tour. <laughs> in this fantasy, somehow the math is I not love it. Up. I love it. Yeah. We didn't really get, we never even traveled anywhere until we we're deep, deep into our forties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just whenever you can take the opportunity. I wish I had done it as a kid, like, you know, a college student, but I didn't have that. I didn't have any money to do it then. I mean, it just was not realistic. I needed to just get through school. Yeah. Well, it's totally fine if you don't have an answer for this, but I thought we'd do a little return to everyone's favorite segment. What have we been watching? Now, I know you're on vacation, but did you like maybe catch a movie on a plane or was there anything that caught you recently? Yes. Tell me. Yeah, I caught some movies on planes. I also, uh, I watched Yellowstone. I went and I got Peacock because I want to see what people were all like jacked up people about. People are going crazy about. about that show. How is it? What What is your take? Uh, I don't know. It's like everything to me is the Godfather, but not as good. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's almost like there's something biker about it. Like, what's that dumb biker show that everybody loves? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like Sons of uh, Sons I, of I, Thunder or something. something no, Sons like of that. Anarchy. Anarchy. Sons, Sons of, of anarchy. anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, nah. So, uh, you know, it's got tension, but it's like, how many murders can happen in like a small area? Anyway, but what was interesting to me yeah, was I watched that and I realized this Dante guy, he writes about these different factions that are fighting each other in the city of Florence. And then Shakespeare writes about those similar things, about these factions, you know, like think about Romeo and Juliet, right? Capulets, yeah. Montagues. And so I think that that's like its whole thing. Like I was connecting it all the way back to Dante and I'm like, oh yeah. And then Shakespeare and then also, you know, Greeks. Explains but, why but it's This popular. is a thing. It's yeah. a thing. It's like human. We like to hear about these feuding families. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I get into it and I'm like, oh man, I got to like take a break. This is too, it's, it's got that like Ozark, like where I'm like, Ugh. I got to right. like maybe like let my mind breathe a little bit. <laughs> Well, good. I, of course, have um, been watching a little more HBO. I've been watching a show called The White Lotus. Have you heard of this? No, but I need to get HBO Max. 
How did I get, get Peacock HBO before Max. I get HBO Max? I don't know. I know. Well, Peacock's cheaper, so I don't blame you. But The White Lotus is fantastic. So it's basically about this resort, uh, this fictional resort called The White Lotus, and these you know really rich white people come and clash into each other and clash into the hotel guests, and like it's just conflict ensues. It's sort of like a satire on rich white people, which there's a lot of meat on that bone. And it's really funny, but like also the guy who writes it, he writes and directs. His name is Mike White. And which, by the way, is that Mike White from like he wrote with Jack Black? Yes. He he works with Jack Black. Exactly. Yeah. So his dad was a professor at my seminary at one point. But go ahead. Really? Oh, that's Uh fascinating. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And he also did an HBO show called Enlightened, which has a rabid fan base that was with Laura Dern back in the day. So anyway... But, like, just writing and directing is so fascinating to me because, like, you write something, and the reason I like writing is that you're, like, God. You can, like, just make characters say things and do things. But then when you direct, it's a collaboration. So you almost have to throw out your script and sort of it becomes something new. So I'm just fascinated with people who can do both sides of their brain like that. But anyway, so he just has a very insightful grasp of human nature and characters. He writes really fascinating characters. And so that was season one was great. That came out, like, a year ago. But then they did season two and i'm like how can you recapture this you're just going to keep going to the same resort and crazy things are going to happening but what they did was they went they turned it into this thing where it's like oh this is a a worldwide resort that like has multiple locations so now the second season actually takes place in italy well it's like sicily but i think that's that counts right it's an island yeah it depends who you talk to but that's a island, okay. the island <laughs> off the coast yeah terrible with geography but it's in the ballpark but it's anyway godfather i mean yeah. sicily's like you know that's where corleone's from but anyway go ahead yeah yeah yeah. so you're in this new like version of the white lotus it's the italian like uh section of it and uh-huh. you've got one recurring character and it's even better than season one they it's so it's just so great i love this show love mike white i'm so that's so cool you have a connection with him but like he's a really really. well i mean like you know the kevin bacon type of connection that's cool yeah i got the kevin bacon connection with him you know (laughs) he probably thinks about me often he probably does (laughs) he's like i wonder what that nelson's up to (laughs) exactly you should check Uh it out if you haven't uh looked at the white lotus when you finally get hbo max check it out you'll like it it's really good so there you go that's my recommendation uh you're welcome hbo where checks in the mail i'm sure no. No, no it's sponsorships. It's not in the mail. <laughs> anyway, Tim, we got to get down to business, yes. man. Now, ah, geez. I am grateful <laughs> that you and Han, a freaking trip to Italy, came all the way back to the States and somehow still managed to see a three-hour and nine-minute movie for this podcast. That's dedication, ladies and gentlemen. That's Tim Nelson right there. I was Round pretty lagged applause. out, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you texted. I honestly would not have judged you at all if you had to cancel. I was I was writing the outline going, this is a complete waste of time because Tim's going to get back and be like, I, I can't do it, man. <laughs> I was, no, I was, I, I just didn't know you are like, I need editing time. I'm like, yeah, you do. Because I, I, I really respect your the time you put in. And I was like, yeah, he needs editing time. I'm going to figure this out. So it worked out. My wife was cool. She's like, yeah, just go Sunday night. And I, I figured it out. And I was I awake the whole time, which is like pretty amazing. So Yeah, you didn't yeah. fall asleep. And that's tough seeing a late, like a big movie at night. Yeah, that's really Yeah, I was tough. seven hours off like the day before. So yeah, mm. it was a lot of fun. Well, thank <laughs> you. got to stay up or you won't get back time. on track. I really yeah. appreciate it. How was... What theater did you end up going to? Were you like the only one there? My AMC theater. Yeah. And I was the only guy in the theater, which I thought was like perfect. Yeah. Well, for you, well, <laughs> but I was like, oh man, how bad is this film? 
it's not been making much money at the box office, so it does not surprise me that you're the only one there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was me and one other guy at my thing too. So yeah. and it's been it's only been out for like a few weeks. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when we saw it, it has only been out for what three weeks or something or two weeks. Yeah, and it costs something like I think it was sixty or eighty million to make. So oof. Man, not good. Hopefully, there's something the studio has to offset this thing, <laughs> right? So, yeah, same with me. Uh, just some other dude there. I was actually I couldn't go to my favorite theater because it was only playing in that bistro plex part of the theater where you got the office chairs and the table. I didn't want to do that, and I'm trying to eat healthier, and it would have tempted me to get a whole bunch of terrible food. So, I went to the. <laughs> I love the food section that we tend to go to, but we but you didn't go there, so we can't go there now. But I can't go I, I like to discuss the latest gross theater food. But go, go anything you've seen lately at all in the theater is disgusting. No, I'd, I try to avoid it. I really do because I haven't even eaten popcorn in a theater in a long time. I'm really trying to, to be on the straight and narrow. Then. Yeah, um, yeah. But so I went to this other one. It was just me and some other guy. And then so here's the thing: Did you have some like weird trailers before your movie, like? What is going on? <laughs> so I've been timing my movie because yeah, I told oh, you, I, no. I am you just so it. whiny. I'm so whiny. I'm like a grumpy old man. I am a grumpy old man. There's nothing like about it. And so I, what I do is I actually time my movie to, like when I get there to 15 minutes after the start time. Oh, my God. Like, I just you skip do right it. And I waited in line. I was a little nervous. So I was like, it's like 630. And I'm like, hey, there, there's some previews, right? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of previews. But I didn't see any. So I oh. got in there, and there was nothing but the weird Nicole Kidman thing like, do you like movies? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, no. And I'm like, help. <laughs> you know, I wish they'd get rid of that at AMC. That it's AMC like so thing. creepy. It's so annoying. I remember it when I was there with you. They're still playing that stupid thing. It's a yeah. COVID thing. So we got to come back together. <laughs> I can't remember what she says, but it's freaking scary. <laughs> I'm so totally funny. afraid of Nicole Kidman. Me too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you missed it, Tim, because there were some of the weirdest freaking trailers I've ever seen. So, first off, there was something called Cocaine Bear, which is literally... Cage, cage? No, 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 no. <laughs> Ray Liotta, the second, the second he's, best. So he's dead. Ray Liotta's dead. What? Yeah, he died. Oh, he you're right. I totally Cocaine forgot Bear. about that. Wow. I just, I like, I, you're right. I'm now, I'm now I remember, but I missed it when I was watching the trailer. I was like, oh. So it's about this bear that gets high on cocaine and the cocaine is from a like drug cartel or something and then the whole movie is them trying to like run away from this bear that's high that's eating people i, I could not believe what i was watching like, oh, bear. i'm looking it up right now <laughs> oh and it God. looks so so it's bad so bad and the bear is so cgi like it's it's like it's embarrassing it's yeah, man. Cocaine. I can't believe the movie exists. Bonkers. And Ray Liotta. That's probably. What if that was his last film? Oh, that would be so sad. Maybe. Or we, or, or maybe, maybe I mean, it's the fact fantastic. That we're talking about it, and he had work up till his death. That's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, if you have a title like that, they're just go. They're embracing it, right? They're just like, this is who we are. I'm looking at the uh, actual like the theater poster right now. Yeah, and it's this bear. He's like just like <laughs> exploding with powder all over him. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got like this font that's like blood scratches like for like the for the bear part of it it looks like a bear that like slashed it like rode in blood <laughs> i, I can't it believe so it. Terrible. it exists it's crazy so yeah cocaine bear and then 
Next up was a trailer about a bunch of old ladies trying to go to the mm. Super Bowl because they're Patriots fans, and it's called 80 for Brady. And you have Sally Field and all these other people. <laughs> like, Tim, I'm just sitting there going, like, what has happened to movies? Like, are are we serious right now? This is... Yeah, so I, I guess don't know they what just... you're talking about with cocaine bear. I'm that sounds that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> you're like that one, but good. the 80, eighty for Brady. That's what that. I wonder if they were asking themselves, well, these guys came to this movie. Uh-huh. This is an right. awful movie. That kind of says something about there... the movie, doesn't it? Yeah, right. I wonder what else we could get them to go to. <laughs> yeah, they paid money to see there. this. Hmm. I like how movies you just take two things and put them next to it, and that's your title, Cocaine Bear. Cocaine Bear. It actually is a. Br- the more I think about it, the more I do want to see. It. <laughs> Don't you want to see it? It's in. It's your genre too, man. It's, it is. You like the horror thriller, like suspensey. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. But I mean, that's more like tongue and cheek, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you see, you think of like a very powerful thing, like cocaine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Cocaine, and Rick, then there's what is bears. These? I mean, what's I mean, more bears powerful are really, than bears? I mean, then bears, and then you Oof. think, whoa, whoa, what if we got this bear on cocaine? Yeah. Uh, incredibly powerful stimulant. That's exactly how this originated, yeah. exactly. And then Some he goes dude. to war with a drug cartel, is this correct? Yeah, yeah, Ray, ooh, Ray Liotta <laughs> is the... <laughs> What's not to love? How can we not? We're officially endorsing Cocaine Bear. Cinema Faith. We're not going to go. We're not going to review it, okay? No, of course not. But but we 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 will see it, and you know, might see it. I'm going to. We might talk about it at some point. Yeah, we talked about it enough now. But hopefully, it will meet our expectations or exceed them, and we'll get to kind of revisit it. So look forward to Tim, Tim, Tim. When I come in June, what if we watch it together? Just Do you as think a joke, it's gonna Just be out by night. then. Yeah, yeah. When yeah, does yeah. it come out? It comes. It came out in like this month or next month. So it'll totally be streaming by then. It'll be like right. ten o'clock at night. We'll be like, dude, let's just do it. Let's do it. I would love to watch Cocaine Bear with you at ten Perfect. at night. Perfect. I love it. All right, <laughs> it's a plan. It's a date. Now, anyway, <sighs> finally got past these crazy trailers, and then of course we have our. You had your Nicole Kidman thing. I was not at AMC, so I didn't have that. But we both, I think, shared the pleasure of having um, Margot Robbie and the other actor, Diego Calva, tell us thank you so much for watching our movie. Oh, Tim, I hate it it's so getting, much. I, it's getting awful. It's, it's so we're not bad. A, we're not at like a community theater. Right. <laughs> like, why are these people introducing right. their film? We yeah. we already talked about this at Tom Cruise with uh, with you know Top Gun Maverick, but and I think we agreed at that time that Tom Cruise is the only one who can pull that off successfully because you're like okay I get it, but like we should not be doing this every time now. It's not okay. Yeah, it just so if he has a weird dirty feel to it. It's like taking. Did the filmmaker intend these things to occur? Mm, yeah. And then, like I said before, it always takes me out of it because now I hear Margot Robbie with her original accent and then 10 minutes later I'm supposed to like get into her as a character. It's like, stop it. Stop. Not cool. Well, it could be. Here's a theory. Here's mm. a theory for you. It could be that you don't want to like go straight from the cocaine bear preview into the movie. <laughs> it's, an, it's a smooth <laughs> right? transition, right? Cocaine well, bear so eighty the, for Brady the movie. That's a that's a lot. Right. Yeah. So then Chazelle's like, we got to put some. We need a buffer. We need to put something in between these weird previews. And I like the film. thought of Chazelle personally understanding that cocaine bear is going to play before his movie. He it's might like, know okay. that some. All right. I mean, you got to think. He's like, all right, all right, can we put a buffer? Okay, we'll just put the. We'll just do one of these intros, like we're yeah. doing like the community theater intro. Perfect. Well, I like it. I like it. All right. Well, thankfully, finally, the movie did start after all of that. And here we go. We're going to talk about it. So, 
Babylon is the film that we are discussing today. And I don't think we mentioned that yet. I'm sorry. It is Babylon. But you know, you clicked on the link. For the uninitiated, Tim, and I'm sure there are many, many who have not seen this movie and probably have no intention to, what is Babylon about? How would you describe this film? Babylon's like a uh, movie about the 1920s Hollywood silent film era and then the shift to talkies which we've had another movie like this before and then how that impacted three different characters and how that impacted the industry and what it, how it changed Los Angeles in some ways mm, and the film yeah. industry itself yes and they are fictional movie stars they're not actually real people but they are based on some real life figures who who went through this period where they're just they were like the kings and queens of the silent film era and then you move to talkies mm-hmm. and all of a sudden people are like uh, i don't like his voice then what do you do right that's a tough transition yeah. so that was a quite a tumultuous period in hollywood and that is what babylon is about and you follow these characters and they sort of all uh, self-destruct in their own ways because they cannot adjust to the new Hollywood, that is Babylon. Yeah. So as we usually do, let's start off by talking about some acting. Margot Robbie. I think she's really good in this. I think she's the standout performance to me in this film. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I like Brad Pitt too. Okay. I think uh, I like him the way he played it. Okay. But yeah, probably she is. You're probably right. They're both up there. Yeah, I got you. Mm-hmm. She's she's just like I've never seen her so fearless before like it's just a live wire character right she's just from the minute she literally crashes into the film she is just going and so I've just yeah I've seen her play a lot of interesting characters but I've never seen her so alive and on fire as she is in this movie and I thought it was just fascinating but i mean she's had a really impressive career she got started in or her big breakthrough was the wolf of wall street with uh you know scorsese and leo. Then she's yeah with leo and she's been going ever since i even personally liked her as harley quinn in the suicide squad even though that movie kind of sucks i thought she was great in that but like she has two oscar nominations under her belt already two mm-hmm. for i tanya where she played tanya harding and then she was in bombshell where she played that woman who was like harassed by Whatever his name is. The creepy old guy from Fox News. O'Reilly? No. He is in that movie. But um, the Roger Ayers, is that his I name? never Whoever watched Roger. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I yeah. never watched that movie. So I don't yeah, know that. It's movie. a good movie. It's good. Yeah. The guy from 30 Rock from the Sun plays Ayers in like Lithgow? heavy makeup. Yep. Lithgow plays him. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, two Oscar nominations under her belt. And here she is now in, uh, as Nellie Leroy in this movie. And yeah, I thought I thought she was really good. What did you think of her character? It's kind of sad. Yeah, I thought sad, but like also like she that character exists out there. If you look at the silent film stars, they do kind of, they kind of are like crash and burn types, especially mm. the women, which is you have a limited shelf life. A lot of these women like would have a 10-year career and that would be it, maybe mm. less. Yeah. And it was, you know, about like are you young, are you good looking and then like, how do you and the acting is so different back then than it than it was now it's like we have to be very nuanced it's very dependent on vocal variation how you say things it's much more like theater but in a silent era a lot of like over gesturing Mm -hmm. uh the way you move your eyes and everything was like bigger so it very different so she has to do that right so she has to do the silent style acting which I thought she did a great job on. Did great job. Yeah. Like at that bar scene, that was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then she also has to do the, um, 
the act, like just regular acting, but the, but, but the idea of that she would be over the top, all these folks that are in these movies are over the top. Like they're way exaggerated, which kind of mirrors how you have to act. Then you had to be way exaggerated in all your gestures and they were in their lives. Right. So you get the Brad Pitt character the same way. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was a good way to set it up is that she's just a, she's going to burn out and she's going to burn bright. Yeah. You know, and that, and that's what's going to happen. Right. She's got that gambling addiction. She's like looking for the next high, the next. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's addictive just... personality, which I think to leave. I mean, if you're looking at Hollywood in the 20s, I mean, this was not an established thing. I mean, it, yeah. Yes. There's movies there. But to go leave your home. I mean, keep in mind, there's no highway system. So you're taking a train to Hollywood <laughs> from wherever you're coming from. There's no highway system. You're coming to this place that's mostly like a more like an orange grove. I mean, they show that in the first, you know, they show Bel Air in the first scene. Yeah. And it's an orange grove. How about that? That's crazy. So you're coming about. to this place that's San Francisco would have been like the main place. LA was not quite that yet. So you're coming to this place to be in the film industry and it is just like a bizarre thing to do. And so it does attract more I would say, I think it still does to a certain degree attract eccentric people, but I think far less. There was there's there's more of a roadmap now. And it's interesting how the skill set that they were rewarded in in the silent film era then is what becomes their downfall in the live action era. You know, you have Brad Pitt's character who like you say you actually you know, put dialogue to these sappy romantic scenes mm-hmm. that work just fine in the silent era, and all of a sudden people are literally laughing at him on screen. Margot Robbie, I love that scene where she does her first, you know, on the soundstage scene, and she has to do take after take after take. Oh, too loud. Oh, too soft. Oh, someone sneezed, and it's just like excruciating, right? Yeah. Versus the uh, the other scene, which is the first scene that we see her in, where she can cry on cue. You can be as loud as you want on set, and you can, and you're basically. The, everyone else is responding to your craziness <laughs> yeah. and uh, but then it comes to the audience it's absolutely silent so you have to like so but you could get everybody jacked up you could do all these things so it's like this major absolute flip of now everyone has to be totally silent the camera is so loud that you can't you have to put the camera in a box soundproof box I mean it's just like it's so crazy yeah and so like living having a the whole thing flip so being the life of the party in the first one is like really critical which as you see like the first scene is a gigantic ridiculous party that's over the top that like you know when is it looked like studio 54 in there <laughs> i know that's what they wanted for the silent era and then in the talkie era everything was metered and controlled and so to make that change it wasn't just about your voice it was all about your like your style so yeah, I thought that was interesting. I thought yep. it was different because, like, I know for me, it was like, well, preaching in a Pentecostal church versus preaching in a, a high church setting, like an Episcopal church, like mm. way different. Interesting. Yeah. One, you have to like, yeah, and I probably more, I'm probably more geared for that Pentecostal church, you know, where I get some response and I like you it. get feedback, right? As compared yeah, exactly. to like your typical Protestant church, where it's like people just staring at you for forty minutes, right? Yeah, like a bunch of wasps, right? They're all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the yeah, where it's just like, wow, you might have got a nod, and you could preach like passionately, and you'll get nothing in response. So I think that those shifts are a difficult shift, and and I look at like, wow, that I feel like Chazelle in writing this is appreciating that there was a major shift. Yeah. And he's to a certain degree an antiquarian. He likes old stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at all his films, they're very sentimental about old, old other times. Mm-hmm. And then of course, like you said, Brad Pitt, 
I mean, uh, yeah, man. What can you say after all these years, all these movies? I mean, okay, so I want to hear your take on why you loved him in this. I And I did like him in this. I always like him. But I just feel like I've never not seen Brad Pitt just play a different version of Brad Pitt. He's just one of those classic movie stars, right, that we've talked about before where you got like Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks. Brad Pitt were just like they're the last dying breed of people that can just sort of play themselves, but it works every time because they're charismatic and they just have that swagger about them that you you mm-hmm. always go along with it. So it did seem so I liked him in this and I liked his character. It just seemed like it was just, you know, Brad Pitt doing his thing again for the 50th time. But what did you appreciate about it? Well, I think it's what he does. I mean, he's he's basically he's an alpha male character and he plays that character. Yeah, that's what you get when you sign him on, right? It's what exactly. you get. He does it really well. He's got the deep voice. You want those qualities when you cast him. Mm-hmm. And so what I can say is he does that well. I don't yeah. know if we want to think like, is he going to have the range like day-to-day Lewis? No. I don't think that that's what he's, that's not what he exists. And he doesn't have to. You don't, yeah. You can have two different types of acting. You can have the people who disappear and you can have the people who are just really good at playing themselves. I, and I'm totally fine with that. I think in the beginning, he was more like, he was more eye candy in his first roles. Or just, he's just, he's just very statuesque and he's a beautiful guy, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in these, in the later roles, he has to be a little more complex. I like this role because he's, this character is on his way out after being at the top. And that's really where, where Pitt's at. Hmm. Pitt's on his way out in some ways. That's a good parallel. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's playing this and Robbie's probably on her way up. Right. Yeah. But, but I look at Pitt and I look at him as being somebody who is on the downside of his fame. Obviously he's got good movies. He's has a lot of work. And he's an interesting, great actor, but he's definitely like the character he plays in some ways, which is, yeah, he may be in some crappy films here and there, but, but, and it'll get crappier as he goes, as he ages. But I I like him. I think he does a good job at what he's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Yep. He plays Jack Conrad. He's good, man. He's just, you know, when is Brad Pitt not good? He's, he's, and, and I think when you like think about his, like even his movies, it's almost like because he consistently plays himself, it's sort of like, what are your favorite Brad Pitt performances? It's really like, what are your favorite Brad Pitt movies? So for me, it would be probably like Seven or Tree of Life or whatever. But like, yeah, man. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. And I like that parallel. You're right. It's like he's on his way out, just like his character. And, you know, it's that curse that like, I remember growing up and my mom would always be like, oh, blah, 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 died. And I'm like, what, who are you talking about? And then it gets to that point where you become that person. Like, I honestly don't, if like Brad Pitt died tomorrow, I would, pro- I would say, oh my gosh, Brad Pitt died. And my son wouldn't have any idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So kind of that transitory nature of being the, I mean, so, so Brad Pitt is the, you look at like uh, the character that Robbie's playing. She's the it girl, right? Mm-hmm. So that's actually Clara Bow. Like was there was actually a movie I think called silent film called the it girl, which is like, and she became the one that everyone wanted to see. People would get obsessed with her. And I feel like Brad Pitt in, in, in the last 30 years is the it boy, right? He's yeah. the guy that you make a movie. You'll see, you know, I'll go usually if he makes a movie, I'll go see it. Yeah, me too. And so, yeah, maybe he's the last movie star. Maybe it ain't. Tom Cruise. Cruise, Hanks, and him, honestly. That's the, mm-hmm. the top three that last movie stars in my book. Yeah. Yeah, but I thought he did well, but he, he is. You're not going to get something that's not Brad Pitt for this. Right. It's Brad Pitt. It's Brad Alpha. Pitt. Alpha. Yeah. Exactly. 
And then we should probably talk about the lead of the movie, Diego Calva, who plays Manny. He hasn't done anything notable except he was in Narcos Mexico, which is weird because I've seen all the Narcos stuff on Netflix. I love the show. I don't remember him in it at all. I don't think he had a big role. Mm-hmm. So this is basically his big breakout performance, and he's the lead in this. But I got to tell you, Tim, I don't know what it was. I just didn't love him in this. It's not that he was bad. He was perfectly fine. It was sort of like like almost Brad Pitt for me in that like he just sort of did his thing. There was nothing wrong with it, but he wasn't he didn't have the swagger of Brad Pitt. So there was something that was I want to say almost boring about him as the lead in this, and I feel bad saying that. What were your thoughts on him as Manny in this? Oh, I liked him. I thought he was kind of the eye of the hurricane. Okay. So while everyone else is kind of, even in the first scene, right, he has, he has to figure out how to get this elephant to this big, crazy party. Right. And he always finds a way to make it happen. Like, he's the guy that finds a way to make something happen when nobody else can. And he, so he's this real sense of, like, follow through. And he's like, he where everyone else is, like, just, it seems like the whole movie, like, drunken on drugs and, like, everything's falling apart and and he seems really centered and he can see the truth in the midst of all the chaos. It's like steady Eddie. That's right. I love when he go when he gets that camera and then he's like, you know, rushes in as the lights fading and saves the day. Like that whole sequence of the, the film being shot outside. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. That's like captured something. It's like they got all these homeless guys from downtown LA or whatever. And they're like, people are dying on set and they're like, all right, get another uh, guy. (laughs) It's like horrible, horrible. But it is, I think it captures like the era. I thought he thought he did a good job. Right. The way that Brad Pitt sort of like stumbles out, he's totally drunk. And then, but when the, the camera comes on, you have this beautiful climactic moment as the lights fading in the background and a butterfly on his shoulder. It's like, yeah, that whole, that whole sequence was a standout for me for sure. Yeah, and then I think like a connection to vaudeville. They mentioned a little bit of that, but the the idea of like that you could get a crowd hyped up would be like so all these silent era folks could get like a crowd emotional, like get them hyped up. Mm-hmm. Versus a new actor, the idea was to be uh, measured and do your job on time, know your lines. Yeah, to where it used to be like there was this high, super emotional person that could come in and like really like hype up the joint and then it became something that was more of a more like a quiet craft yeah and so i think that capturing that the differences in that i think chazelle did a good job in the script there yep i'm with you i don't know i don't know just with diego calva i'm like i guess it was just it's the curse of playing the lead right you're you're there's a lot of scenes where you're just sort of taking it all he's our like lens into the the world so there's a lot of scenes where he's just sort of staring off into space and kind of contemplating things and i don't know so do you see this as he's the lead or do you think of this as more ensemble yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's hard if you're if you're talking about the big three, Brad Pitt, him, and and Margot Robbie. I mean, it's difficult to say that one is more prominent than the other. That's a, that's a good point. I think it is more of an ensemble piece, and so it's just yeah. I mean, I guess because the movie sort of begins and ends with him, he just feels yeah yeah. Like, I think that's yeah yeah. It's his narrative. It feels like mm-hmm. so yeah. I don't know. I, I it's he was fine. He was perfectly fine. I just don't think it's a, the kind of performance that I'll like be talking about in ten years. Whereas Margot Robbie, for me, would probably be the one from this movie that I'll be like, I'll remember, like you know, mm-hmm. years from now. But yeah. and she's given that license too, so it's not mm-hmm. like he. It's not saying that he's not capable of anything like that. It's just exactly you, it, these characters are meant to do certain things, and that's what Robbie Robbie is supposed to be. A, basically, plays like an over the top charismatic partier. 
Yes. Who captivates any room she walks in for good or evil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Um, yeah. So there you go. Those are the big three. And then there's some cool supporting performances too. You got Jean Smart, who I thought was pretty great. And she has a fantastic scene with Brad Pitt where she kind of like tells him, you know, late, just, just lays it out about how, you know, movie stars have their little, their season. They should be grateful for that season and then they die. And that's just the way of things. And like, I thought that scene was brilliantly written and acted in by, with Gene Smart there. That was, it was well written. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And then Flea is in this. Do you? Do you <laughs> oh yeah. That caught me off guard. I was like, wow, Flea looks old. And I looked it Dude, up I'm like, go. oh, Flea is old. <laughs> he is old. Of course, the basis for Red Hot Chili Peppers, but he's also just acts from time to time as well. He was needles in Back to the Future. No, he's that guy that calls uh, Marty chicken and does the drag racing and stuff. He's one of the nihilists <laughs> in uh, Lebowski too. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah, so that's he's always nice seeing him. And then Toby McGuire. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Tim. That is like got to be his creepiest performance of his entire career. Creepy. He's also a producer on this. So oh, I didn't he, know that. So he put some money into this. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> too bad for Toby. <laughs> but um, unless this thing picks up in some other markets. Right. But it's so creepy. And he's, oh, at that, he's at that age where he like basically played a kid for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm Mr. Hey, Mr. You know, he's like that because he had that baby MJ. face. Yeah, right. Right, right. And then um, now he's at the age where he has to start playing creepy characters. Yeah, that's right. That's and what I, you do. And I really old. like it. I really like him. Yeah, if you have a baby face and you get old, <laughs> you're like creepy already. You look like a doll with wrinkles. <laughs> and, oh, my uh, God. That's what he's doing. The way it's he good. kept applying that like weird white makeup and his like high pitched laugh. Oh, it was it was something else. Yeah. yeah. That whole scene is like completely you know goes on too long it belongs in a different movie it's but like as a, as like its own contained thing it's uh quite the journey that is i feel like else. that could be its own like the, exactly. it's almost like its own movie <laughs> right that whole the interaction with yeah and then contrasting that the what was happening there with the initial scene of a party which if you look at the surface level you're just like oh similar and then no no these which i think is what which i think is the ultimate goal is they were contrasting sort of like how how different hollywood is now that we've entered this new era but like yeah i don't know it's like so many things in this movie where i love all the like so many individual elements like you said that's that mm-hmm. scene works on its own but then you put it all together and it's just this crazy pineapple and pizza that, situation <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah which i'm not i actually like pineapple and pizza but i'm in the minority so i get the idea of that <laughs> yeah yeah there is a lot of stuff that works it has this you know we talked we talked a few podcasts ago about apocalypse now mm. And the idea that this film like dragged out and it was how many versions can you get of the editing? And this film has this, this feeling like it could keep going and going and going and going and going and, and it could get edited and edited and edited and it would never, it could be a never ending project. It has that feel like this is a never ending project that had to end. Yeah. Like a heart of darkness situation, like a heart of darkness situation. And it's driving, you get that sense that it may be driving Chazelle insane to make it. <laughs> right. He probably whittled it down know. from like eight hours and he's like, guys, this is the best I got. I, mean, I know, I know. <laughs> right. Which would kind of line up because you look at Heart of Darkness and I mean, Apocalypse Now, and it's like, okay, you have a director who's had major success. Mm-hmm. Now they have the keys to every car <laughs> yeah. and they, what will they do? And sometimes it's like, well, the vision might get 
so big that it doesn't, that it loses any kind of definition anymore. That's right. She's like, I want to do this giant thing. And you're like, well, what is it? I don't know anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you start becoming so successful that people stop saying no to you or like they say, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you, you stop, you maybe you're missing that healthy feedback of like, I don't know. Right. You're like, this guy made La La Land. (laughs) Well, I guess we could just run this cameras for another five minutes in the scene. So, Uh Or like, oh, I guess this. we don't want to like cut anything that Chazelle makes. And he's a brilliant filmmaker. Like we've seen yeah. him do incredible stuff. And even within this film, there's brilliance. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Because like he, yeah, Damien Chazelle, I, the reason, whole reason I wanted to see this movie and take a gamble on it, because I knew it was a gamble because I knew that the, the reviews were all over the place and some people loved it, some people hated it. And that, you know, I just didn't know what we were going to actually see when we went there. But the whole reason I wanted to do it was because I love him as a director and I loved his his first movie especially so much. I mean, well, it wasn't technically his first movie. He actually made a movie, some movie called yep. Guy and Madeline park on a Park one. Bench. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, no one's seen that. doesn't matter. Tried to see Throw it. it out. Can't find it online. Yeah, you can't find yeah. it. It's gone. So let's just say that Whiplash is his first movie because that was his first breakthrough and I love Whiplash, man. I, I've talked about this before but, you know, I did a double feature of Whiplash and Birdman and it was like one of the highlights of my life. It was just so... The most, like, just guns blaring, everything going in that theater that night. And, like, I walked out floating on cloud, on, like, movie heaven. It was beautiful. And so Whiplash is just, and I've watched it again recently. I showed it to my son. It's a perfect film. Just one of those movies that every single second, every beat works. And it is just, like, it's, like, whittled down to its just pure essence. Like, I love that movie. You love Whiplash too, right? I love it too. I I think what you have is well, you yeah, and you also have a limited. I mean, you have you have parameters, and I think this is like with writing or art or anything. Like if you have if you have parameters, then you can then you know where you're at. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're this director and you don't have any parameters, you can't create. So it's almost like, well, okay, I have to do a haiku. Okay, all right, I can I can do that because then I know my parameters. I'm not going to get way outside them. And so I feel like with Whiplash, you have budget considerations you've got an unknown virtually unknown person at that time so he's gonna yeah right yeah and the pressure is there's pressure there but like the pressure of it's a different pressure so like now Chazelle is successful so the pressure is to stay on top there is no pressure to get to like be the best anymore or to like prove himself it's to stay on top which is a different kind of pressure it's almost like more it's kind of more evil in some ways like this pressure to stay on top because there's no it's all downside. <laughs> Jack White talks about this all the time because, you know, that's why he created his own limitations. Like he refused to do pro tools. He cut everything himself. And then he had that whole philosophy with the white stripes where everything has to be in threes, three colors, three sounds or whatever. There has to be three instruments on every track. He literally just created his own limitations. And he said, the reason I did it is because I have to have that in order. I have to have a box in order to actually create. If it's just whatever you want to do, then I feel like it's it's overwhelming and it's too much. And so he's a big believer that you need limitations in order to actually create good art, which I guess is debatable, but you see 
you mm. see that some of the best work is created under that kind of pressure, under limitations, under, you know, you know yeah. It's boundary. There's boundaries. I mean, like it's, and, and they could be self-imposed or they might be imposed on you by your, so yeah, so these boundaries are important. It takes a lot more to push through once you've been successful, at least what I've seen with literature and with these films, it takes a lot more to like go to get people to go, whoa, oh my gosh, they're brilliant again mm-hmm. than it does to initially break through. It seems that way, at least to me. Sure. You see it all the time. You see a Shyamalan coming through with the, you know, breaking out with a sixth sense right out the gate. And then he spends the rest of his career trying to do something that's halfway decent again. And, and I mean, Chazelle, yeah, we differ. We differ on Shyamalan. <laughs> I like, I like some of the stuff that other people don't like, but yeah. It's okay. But like, no, with Chazelle though, he did, it wasn't just one movie though, to be fair. He did that. He did Whiplash and then he did La La Land, which, you know, I wouldn't say is a I wouldn't call it perfect like I would Whiplash, but it's definitely in the AA minus range. It's a very good movie. It's you know it was the one of the best of that year. It's a modern day musical, and then he did First Man uh, was his third movie after that with Ryan Gosling, which is also a fantastic film about Neil Armstrong. It was really good. I think I gave it an A minus. It's a very good movie, and so yeah, like he had too. a string of successes. It wasn't like a one hit wonder situation. But then, like you said, he gets the keys to the kingdom. And it's like, you're the man. And then uh, it can be a trap. It can. So I feel like his own film went excessive. Mm -hmm. If you look at Whiplash, it's very pared down. It's like gladiator almost. Like it's just, I I don't know how else to describe it. Like exactly. Like it's a feeling of just like, there's no, there's no, it's just lean, lean movie. Every piece of dialogue matters. Every it shot ends at matters. exactly the right moment, and cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the music is per. Everything's like just so lean. Mm-hmm. And then you look at La La Land, and it kind of goes. You're like, oh, that's more. Okay, so he's now he's doing whatever he wants. He loves old. He likes the golden era of Hollywood musicals, so he's going to do that. Great, and it works. But then I think you know, as you're testing yourself, okay, well, let me see if I take it to a little bit further, what happens? And you're like, oh crap, that's when Babylon occurs. And you're like, yeah, that might've gone, we might've gotten too syrupy at that point. Now, now nobody can even eat this candy, you know, before yeah. it was like, oh, peanut brittle. Now you're like, oh gosh, we can't chug corn syrup. <laughs> that That's kind of like how, uh-huh. if that makes sense, it's just too- No, it's, yeah. What is that? What's that Halloween candy? Candy corn, right? You're just like, mmm, this mm. is really good. Oh God. And like the I'm third one, die. you're like, Bleh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah, it's like eating, like basically eating spoonsfuls of sugar. So I think there's something about the this this film Babylon where it's like it's too much. It's too much. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think it is his worst movie. Now, I'm not going to say it's a bad movie. I mean, I'm going to save my letter grade for later, but I do think I enjoyed the film. I enjoyed so many individual parts of it. I just don't think it works as a whole. It's like that old saying that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I feel like this is the exact opposite for me. Like I loved almost all of the individual parts. I did not like the whole. I I just don't know what, why, but I just didn't. I don't know. It's like if you had all apps. You know, like at the restaurant, you're like, uh-huh. oh, that was a great appetizer. This is a great appetizer. This is a great appetizer. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, I just ate 10 appetizers, but we didn't get a meal. What a great analogy. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Which was like, oh, this is really good. Sumptuous, whatever. But at the end of it, you're like, oh, we're missing something here. Yep. And I felt like that's how I felt about this, which was like well-crafted, really wonderful. Some of these scenes, like the scene where they film, like the same scene that you really love with Brad Pitt, it ends with Brad Pitt and the sunset kissing, you know, that scene is so beautiful. 
Like it's just gorgeous. Perfect. Yeah. But that doesn't, you don't get that same feel throughout the whole movie mm-hmm. where you, where it's still, you get some beauty, but you also get some of this stuff that's just so bizarre and it doesn't all, nothing fits together. Right. It's just very yeah, strange. It fit together. Right. Exactly. But I mean, yeah, I love that scene. I love the, the scene where they do the mall, the, uh, all like that's a brilliant scene too is where they do all the takes in the sound stage because you got like just the there's like a comedy beat to that scene you know you got the guy mm-hmm. that's like passing out in the in the booth and then it's like oh we've got it oh and then someone sneezes and then the guy opens it it's like it's that's that's a brilliant scene i even like the snake scene i thought that was like kind of had its own manic sort of energy to it that was what's well, like these little vignettes right <laughs> yes but the vignettes are uh they're great like, great. Like, I'd love to see that short film, right? Okay, it's just, uh, if you just made these little short films, I'd love it. But then you look at, when you put them all together, the narrative isn't strong enough to string them together. So it's very unfortunate. And then you get to the end of the movie, and it's like, Chazelle's not only just covering this one theme, he wants to make this movie about all movies like i could not believe the audacity of that final sequence you know he's throwing in freaking raiders of the lost ark jurassic park like all these movies and he wants it to be like this is a grand homage to all of cinema and i'm like this could work like if you had actually pulled it off like this would be the perfect capper to a masterpiece but you didn't do it bro and now it looks look you look a little silly like that yeah <laughs> that part that scene was like embarrassing to me. Like, that's the best way i could put that i was like oh my yeah. gosh so he functions really well when he is emulating old things but when you actually re- like when you directly reference them or put them in your film in a period piece, no less. It's so is weird. It's jarring. It was jarring, but it's also like just comes, comes off so corny, man. I was just like, oh, are you trying to draw on the power of these other films and say that this guy is part of that process? Is he arguing for like a didactic process that creates like a beautiful narrative? Maybe. Which you know, that's 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 an interesting thing. What I thought had more like all the tension in this film, where it could have gone was when he did the comparing and contrasting of filmmaking in the silent era versus filmmaking in the sound era, that to me was where all the energy in this film could have been. Like that's where all your characters, you could have really put that, make that kind of like your focal point. Yeah. And they say it is, but uh, I don't know. But the idea of like the silence that you take the silent era and I always think of the silent era as being silent, right? Because that's, have you ever watched a silent film before? I honestly have not. No. So I watched a couple of them to try to watch them like before this because nice. I was like, I should really watch some silent films. So I watched some good research, Tim. Look at you go. Yeah. So I'm watching this and there are, there's tons of them available on prime. Okay. Uh, so I watched one, I think a Fairbanks, a Douglas Fairbanks film. And I watched uh, like one of those uh, Claire Bow films mm. And then thinking about like what it was like to make those and then it, that the silent films were you were loud, right? Yeah. So that there was like a party on the set. It was exciting. Like you had to like draw people out and then it would be silent, right? And the dialogue gets kind of sketched out but it gets really created later by these people who are writing those the poster boards. Yep. And what I thought was so interesting is how with the talkies it actually became the filmmaking became silent, but then the experience of the crowd became loud 
And that's just that contrast to me was like so interesting. Yeah. And I thought they could have focused more on that and then developed their characters out of that. Like, how does that impact these different characters? Because that's easily the most interesting part of the movie. I mean, we've already talked so about it like five times. Yeah. So like filmmaking in the beginning was fun, right? Mm-hmm. It looked fun. It looked yeah. insane. It looked like the more daring you were, the better. And then filmmaking in the with the talkies looked miserable. Yeah. Miserable. People sweating, just squeezing out every last... People die because they're trying to be quiet. <laughs> I mean, that's like he did yeah. a, that. Like those scenes are so good, and I thought that he could have really had that be stronger in the film. Agreed. And I, I think that's the problem is that you almost need to do a page one rewrite and focus on you know the stuff that works. Like that's the thing is just, he just takes it. It's so overstuffed. He takes it in so many different directions. And as we've said, it's not like those individual sequences don't work. I'd even say the ending works as an individual set piece. Like you could put that on like the Oscar ceremony and it would be fun and interesting and cool. But it like was it doesn't the Oscar work. Ceremony. With... Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it what it was. <laughs> but it doesn't work in the context of the movie. Like you have all these parts searching for something for searching for a hole. So why not have like to me, like to end the film with like the characters all dying, like a tragedy, mm-hmm. I that would have been fine. Sure. Yeah. But but to end the film with like, well, you were part of this and this is great. Like yeah. they basically got this like forced happy ending kind of. I agree that Manny should have died for sure. It also doesn't make any sense. Okay, you're a contract killer and you just and you're not gonna kill the guy that Right. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. Why would there be mercy involved in there? Yeah, that does right. Oh, I got two out of three. <laughs> like what? And why? Right. Like it doesn't yeah. make any sense. So to me, like to have the characters die because of their because they can't change or because the world has changed and they can't adapt. Every single one of them. Yeah, to yeah, me that would it. be like more that would make more sense. This is like where I, you know, I told you I've been listening to this Quentin Tarantino book about film. Mm, yeah, right. He hates it when characters change all of a sudden and then they're able to like overcome their, whatever they're dealing with. He hates it. He thinks it's like artificial. He's like, no characters yeah, are that's why everyone dies in his movies. Cause he's like, stay true to their path of death. Stay true to the, <laughs> stay true to yeah. the character. Don't like have the character become a different character. Like at, in one, instant right which literally he does because we've like fast forward what 20 years or whatever and now he's just fine it's like what are you doing like how how did he go from being like this innovative studio head that can see the future to becoming like this guy i work in a radio repair shop i'm like no <laughs> in New York. that's not your personality that is not that was not what would have happened like no way it's just his character doesn't like the character doesn't really make sense like he doesn't, he's, he's not consistent. Agreed. So my, my sense is like, have the guy die, have the guy flee, have whatever happens, happens. And then let that, let it, let it play out. But instead of letting it play out, he had to try to make it happy. Yeah. No, I agree. Before we try to tackle the themes, I do want to say that we should talk about the score a second because the composer, Justin Hurwitz, just won a Golden Globe for this, so he's for sure going to be nominated for an Oscar and very well might win it. And he is from Wisconsin. Did you know that? He is from Glendale, Wisconsin. I knew it. There you actually. go. Sorry. That's so cool. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it from pod, from uh, doing La La Land one. Yeah, that's right. That's watch, right. Uh, I remember. Yeah, he was he at UW or something? I No, he went to a high school in, in Glendale. Oh, he, Glendale he, High School. Yeah. 
Glendale High School, right? Yeah, 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 and yeah. then he ended up going to Harvard, and his roommate was Damien Chazelle. And Watch out. There you go. And Chazelle actually like also went to Princeton High School and had a like a tyrant of a teacher there who became the inspiration for Whiplash, which I found out by, um, as a side note. He, it was actually nice. based on his real... Because Chazelle originally wanted to be a drummer, and he like that was the path that he was going to go on, but he realized he wasn't talented enough. Then he went to Harvard for film and created Whiplash. There you go. <laughs> but nice. anyway, must be nice to have those choices. <laughs> I know, I know, right? <laughs> really I'll just go, okay, I'll just go to Harvard. <laughs> but he wrote what he knew. So what did you think about like how much La La Land music was in this film? I remember you said that and like I had to think because I didn't think about that at the time. I remember enjoying the score. I love all the shots of the trumpet and just like music is such a big part of all of Chazelle's movies, which of course makes sense now we know about the whole drummer thing. I mean, music's a big part of his life, but like I didn't pick up on the similarities to La La Land, but that's what was going through your head as you were watching it, right? They actually play La La Land, but they do it in different, there are different arrangements, but it's really? La La Land music. Wow. Mm-hmm. I had, I did not pick up on that at all. They do it in a bunch of jazz arrangements. Okay. I also, now this is unpopular. I also don't, it's the twenties. It's the jazz era, right? Yeah. Yeah. I felt like they could have done, I thought the music could have been better. <laughs> it could have been slightly better. Yeah. Sure, right, because if you think about, like, you know, jazz music and, like, there wasn't any, like, I liked the music, like, I liked the score, I was, it works with the film, but you're Mm -hmm. right, there wasn't, like, some standout scene where you're like, oh, the music, right, and you're supposed to be presenting this this amazing era of jazz music, so it it could have been better. I I agree with that. Probably the the first party had the best music. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's where I notice it the most is that first party yeah. and the trumpets and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but all right, but yeah, Justin so you here have the presence of jazz through there. Yeah, I, he was good, but I thought La La Land much better. La La Land better for sure, and that's where he won or was nominated. He was nominated for two Oscars for for La La Land. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see if he takes home the gold this time. But cool. probably should have gotten it for La La Land. All right, let's try to tackle some themes. I know we've just been talking about like how it's hard to discern the point, but was there a theme that you latched onto at all in this that you could expound on? Uh, I think we talked a little bit about obsession, right? Mm-hmm. I, and then I also think that like change and how quickly change occurs and how do we respond to it? So, and, and even change in art, because art is constantly changing. It's kind of, and it's usually ahead of the social, you know, beliefs and structures and mores and everything. Yeah. And so how do we adapt to change that occurs? And I think we have all experienced a lot of change within our lifetimes. I mean, depending on how old you are, but like going for me, like there's been so much change that it's almost like the tip that you can try to change with it, but there is how much can you actually do that? So like Pitt's character, Pitt did everything right as a character, but people had an idea of who he was. And when he talked, it broke that idea of who they thought he was. And they're like, Oh, that's not the guy in my head. And so he knew it was over for him and he had to kind of accept it. Now in real life, you know, he's playing a character that is an amalgam of several different actual real people. In real life, all those people kind of ended up giving up on the, on the film, but they didn't like kill themselves. Like Pitt kills himself in this movie. Right. And so that's like, that didn't happen. Somebody did that, but it wasn't the, you know, not that character they adapt the best they can and they at some point they go i can't do this so i think there's some within this and i don't know if this is some other bigger narrative of accepting the we can change so much as human beings but making the kind of like go hey i can't change that much 
And I have to accept that and then kind of deal with the consequences of that, whether I be on the top or not. I think that's right. Yeah. That's what I picked up on too. Like I, I hate change. I hate it, Tim. Like (laughs) I don't have a brain that's wired well for change. Like I basically want consistency. I want, if I meet you and you're cool, I want you to stay exactly that way forever. If I enjoy this type of restaurant or this type of food, I want it to always be available and I want to get it every single time I go, right? It's just like, my, I just love routine. I love things to stay the same. And it's very stressful to live in a world where everything is constantly changing. Relationships, mm-hmm. situations, you know, that restaurant's out of business now. You can no longer have that thing that you love. And so, yeah, what do you do? You either accept that or you live a very miserable life. And so I, yeah, I've been trying, honestly, like this year, I've been trying to practice trying to, I spend so much of my life trying to control everything, you know, and again, Enneagram, six on the Enneagram, this is what we do. We try, that. in fact, I heard a, someone on a podcast say we're the most controlling number on the Enneagram, which makes total sense because we, we just, it, we, are, we have a, a need to be secure. And so we try to, artificially create that by controlling people and controlling situations. If I can control you, then I can make you secure, but it doesn't work because people don't want to be controlled and people can't be controlled. And so like recovery, they would say that's exhausting too. Oh, absolutely. Oh, well you can't, you're going to try to control everyone around you to get a certain piece you want, but that process of trying to control everyone is going to create total chaos. Yes. Yes. And it damages your relationships. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So one thing I've been trying to practice this year is just just kind of radical acceptance. I've even been like doing this sort of head thing with myself where it's like, what if this was the last day I'm alive? Or what if like, you know, when someone texts me, I'm like, oh, that person took the time to text me. Like, what if that's the last text I get from them? And just like save, hmm. trying to trying to focus in the present moment as much as I can living that way. Like when I, I, I went out for dinner with a friend the other night and I was like, I'm going to try and I, I constantly forget and then I have to come back, but I'm, I'm going to try to treat this dinner as if this is like the last time I'm going to be with this person. And it just, not in a morbid way, but it just helps you to like, just focus on this moment instead of my tendency to always be like, and then next week we'll do this and then this and this and this, but none of that's guaranteed. And as it's been a meditative practice that I've been trying and it's been really helpful. I know my wife's work and a lot of corporate folks would say, be here now. Yes. And, and so like that, how do we be in the moment, not trying to control the moment that's five moments from now? Oh, it's so beautiful. That's exactly it. Yeah. So, and, and I know good chaplains are that way too, but, but that's hard. That's always been hard for me. Yeah. And I feel like if Jack could have practiced that, he might have been able to be okay with the changes that occurred around him. And what's kind of sad is that I felt like he started to do that a little bit. Like toward you get towards the end of the movie where he's going through that like really depressive streak, like he just, there's this moment where like that California gecko lizard thing or whatever is like crawling on mm-hmm. his wall and he just stops and watches it. He like pauses and on the movie set and talks to this that crew member and he's like, oh, you've been here like all of these years, haven't you? So I feel like he was starting to get in that space, but then he, he kills himself, which is so sad, but yeah. But he's the, he's the king though. Like, I mean, I look at the tragedy of this. This is why it should end like it ends or it should end with everyone dying. There's the tragedy of it is this like, it's just like the whole world changed and they're not going to be capable of making these changes. The one character that would be capable is the one that survives, right? Mm-hmm. The idea is the world has changed. It will never go back to, you'll never be king again. And so either you live the life as being basically somebody who was the king at one point, and then you kind of just live it out, 
or you don't. And for Pitt, like to me, he's like a classic kind of tragic king kind of figure in this, right? He is the king. I mean, like in the best scene in the movie, he's wearing a crown. Yeah. Right. So he's the king of Hollywood and he's been deposed. And so his options are to spend 30 years being the deposed king and watching Clark Gable become the new king, right? Or to just end it and not, and then, you know, and that's what he does. He does in the film. He says, forget it. I can't live for 30 years with Clark as the king. I'm the king. And so he ends it right there. So to me, like that's more, that fits his character. It's like extreme to me that, that, that fits his character, his extreme kind of thinking, which is everything is to the absolute end of the, the line with everything. Mm-hmm. So drink until you're black out, wake True. up early in the morning. Yeah. You know, everything's just more, more than it's over exaggerated. Just like the gestures. You're right. And he had stayed true to his character and Nellie, the fact that she like disappears into the darkness ends up dying totally straight through to her character. But who doesn't Manny and Tarantino is probably freaking yelling at the screen <laughs> when you watch this movie because Manny, I what was interesting about him is that we've talked about codependent relationships before, how we both kind of, you know, veer off into those at times and we try to save people and it doesn't work out. Right. So here you have this guy who I feel like is doing exactly that with Nellie, who's trying like so desperately to save her in a search for finally getting the love that he's always wanted from her. And it almost and should have ended in his death. And it would have been a very poignant sort of like understanding of how those relationships typically do if yeah. you let them control your life. I don't know. I thought that was fascinating. There's a, another take on this movie too that I was uh, I looked at and saw, which is basically if you look at the characters that are non-white characters, they are constantly dancing with this whole, how much power can I have? Like the trumpet player? Trumpet player, the gay woman, mm-hmm. and then Manny. Like Manny was Manuel, dude. That wasn't Manny, <laughs> you know. Right. So how? And then, so do you put on the blackface? How much assimilation do you do in order to get what you want? And so, like, they're playing the game the whole time, knowing that like they're not going to be in power there, but that they might have more power in the in Hollywood than they would somewhere else. Yeah. I wish there would have been a little more focus on that. Like, I felt kind of bad for that whole black trumpet player art because I feel like it needed more meat and it needed some more like. Mm-hmm. oomph to it because that's a really powerful narrative but it feels kind of thrown in because you got you know 50 other billion things they're trying to do yeah and it's also like he's what like a louis armstrong kind of character that's what he's based on who did make concessions you know at some points you go wow that was maybe too much of a concession but also we know who he is right mm-hmm. <laughs> like every like he's a permanent cultural fixture so it's like how did these early folks kind of navigate all that and what was the price of it? You see that in Manny, but you also look at Manny and you're like, Manny should have been the head of head of the studio. Manny shouldn't have been the radio repair guy. He should have been the studio head. He saw, he could see the future basically. Yeah. And he was on that path, like towards the three fourths of the way through. But then yeah, we watch this, the sound. Right. And so he's a radio. He also repairs radios, which is all sound, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which I thought that's pretty cool. And that's about to change, right? So his whole business is radio repair and what happened and it's 1952. So what happens in the next five years? Television. Mm-hmm. So his radio business will be inconsequential. So you look it's at all like, cyclical, he's going to he's yeah. gonna have to weather the next change. Yeah. So how do we weather change? And you know, in that speech that Gene Smart gives Brad Pitt, like, he she tries to make him feel better about the change because she says, wow, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you at least, you made these movies that are going to live forever, you know, and 
I feel like that's not really true, though, because, like, who today, besides you, Tim, and, like, a handful of film students are watching old silent movies that this dude would have been in, right? Like, at some point, the movies don't last forever. At some point, your name doesn't live on for more than however many years. Maybe. Cause, but, like, look at Prime, right? So, like, Prime used to have all the Kurosawa. It had all the it had Fellini. It had all these, like... All the stuff that you could only only film students watched. Mm-hmm. Now everyone is watching that stuff. It's true, right? Yeah. I mean, like heck, I even forced you to watch some Kurosawa. So, but like, and I think directors like Carantino or have uh, their success has forced people to go back and watch stuff they wouldn't have watched previously. Yeah. The ability to do it now is just amazing. Right. It was much harder 20 years ago. Right. Exactly. Right. So now Prime doesn't have all that because they charge for every single one of those things now. And it used to be free. Netflix had a bunch of that stuff, too. Yeah. It used to be free 10, 15 years ago. And I think that's how it's going to be for these silent films. So I'd say go watch these silent films while you can, while they're really not free. They come with a membership. But while you can, watch all the silent movies you can because I guarantee people are going to go back to these things. Hmm. I think we're, we're rediscovering. It's like archaeology, man. We're like rediscovering yeah. these amazing films. And I think we're, we know enough now to like go, okay, these are valuable. And I might spend an hour and a half watching one of these weird films, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Watch some silent movies. That's your homework, dear listener. All right. Don't bake a cake. <laughs> Tim, what are your final thoughts on Babylon and your letter grade? Go for it. Uh, I would give Babylon a C plus. It is a man. There's so it has so many great parts of it, but at the end, it's like you know, the, the, it just isn't running right. Like something's off with it. Yeah. And it's it's bad enough to where I don't know if it's salvageable or not. But I would give it a definite a C plus, which is beautiful cinematography, gorgeous film, decent music. A lot of good things about it, but it doesn't all add up. It adds, it just basically doesn't make any, you watch it and you're like, what? And so it's very unfortunate because I like recognize the artistry that went into this and it just didn't, it didn't really work. So I'm kind of sad to give it a C plus because I love, I loved all the parts of it, but I just didn't like the, when they baked the cake, it, it just was gross <laughs> <laughs> during the film they watched. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was just, yeah. yeah, it didn't, they, it didn't come together. Right. That's it. Yeah. No, I, I agree with everything you just said, but I'm actually going to give it a B plus, which is probably overly generous, but I really did enjoy so much like of the parts of the movie. Like, like I almost every scene I dug, but it just does not work at the whole. And I think the cake is a great analogy. Cause it's like, you got this wonderful tasting sugar, you got your baking powder. You got all of it. It's like, there we go. We did it. And then you eat that cake and you're like, what the heck is this? What went wrong? And th- yeah. <laughs> that's how it feels. That's to how me. you feel. Yeah. You feel like, oh, that could have been really good if we had switched the recipe. That's how you feel at the end of that, uh, at the end of this film. Yes. You're like, dang, why didn't they just do something to make this work? Yeah. It's frustrating almost. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm probably being a little generous with my B plus, but like it's, de- it maybe it's more of a B, but like it's definitely not in the A range because it just doesn't work as a whole. But there are parts, so many parts, in fact, that if I just looked at that as a short film, I would probably give it an A. That's what's so infuriating about it. So Blech. anyway, Porsche's I out. know. We the- like want <laughs> it to work for him. <laughs> right. And we want the film that, that f- this film could have been. Yes. That's it. But it, it wasn't that. Yeah. 
All right. Well, there you go. The movie is Babylon. It might still be playing in a theater near you. Uh, you'll have to check your local listings, but uh, with the box buy office on returns, Prime. yeah, you're going to have to buy it on Prime probably. So, uh, as always, if you have any feedback for us, please write to us at podcast at cinemafaith.com. Podcast mm-hmm. at cinemafaith.com. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you're one of the people that thinks this movie is a masterpiece and you want to defend it. Go for it, because there are many reviewers who did. There are professional film critics who gave this film a perfect rating. They loved it, so maybe that's you out there. And you're what? Like, you really? Got, yeah. Yeah, it's on Rotten Tomatoes. Go check it out. There are people who gave this movie the perfect rating. And huh. so if that's you, tell us why. Tell us why we're wrong. We love hearing about that. And, okay, we have an announcement to make. So we are actually not going to be doing a podcast for February. That's right. There will be no podcast in your feed for February, because... It is Oscar time. The Oscars are on March 12th, and the nominations are announced on January 24th. And between that time period, I finally have my marching orders of all the movies I need to see that I haven't yet. And then I do some Oscar... I know. There's so many. And then I do some Oscar write-ups on the website. So, in February, instead of listening to us... Go to cinemafaith.com and you can see me write up some Oscar articles about the best. I I do a write-up of like all the things that are nominated for best actor, best actress, best blah, 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 blah. And I do some write-ups on that. When are we going to – when does that come out usually? Usually it's sometime like – but it's it's always before the Oscars, like probably the last like – two to three weeks before the Oscars on March 12th, you'll start to see that there's a part one and a part two usually. So, so do you put a ballot on there? Like, do you like, I know some people fill out an Oscar yeah. ballot. Well, do not a ballot, one? but we will, we usually do a ballot when we have our party here. We might do that on the oh. website. When the past we have done, who, what do you think is, should win for best picture? We have done that in the past as far as a poll on the website. Ooh. So we'll do something like that again. Cause that's always fun. You know, it'd be yeah. fun. What? Is if if we had a ballot and we see, because I've lost a bunch of these recently. Uh-huh. If we did a ballot and see how how we came out, like me and you. Yeah, well, that's always what we do at a party. You know, we we should we're gonna probably hopefully I haven't talked to you about this, but hopefully you'll be available to live tweet during the broadcast, Ooh. and we yeah. should have a ballot virtually, and we'll do it for everyone who comes over to my place. I'm sure Dan Baker will be here. Dan and- Baker made it to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Always, always, always. always. Dan Baker, Nicholas Cage. And so uh, we will do a ballot and uh, maybe we'll have one on the website too. So check it out, cinemafaith.com. And uh, it's a good reminder that we do have a website associated with this podcast. So there you go. We will be back in March though. We'll be back in March with our first 2023 film. And that will be What's it going to be? We don't, don't know yet, do we? Who knows? Cocaine Bear. March is always a weird one, isn't it? <laughs> Cocaine Bear. <laughs> Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Why? I mean, <laughs> maybe. I'm sure viewers viewers love that. Our take on that. Cocaine yeah. Bear. We'll see. All right, now and I got to go watch the preview for that online. You really do. Everyone should at least watch the preview. All right. Well, well, I'll see you in two months, Tim, and we'll be in touch about that Oscar live tweeting. That's another thing. Well, there will be more details on the website, but usually in the past, and we will try to do this. We will do this again. No, this will happen. Go to our Cinema Faith Twitter page. So that is at Cinema Faith. And during the Oscar ceremony on March 12th, you will see live tweets from at least me and Dan Baker, and hopefully Tim will join in as Ooh. well. So that'll be a treat. So there you go. And cool. then we'll be back in March for our podcast. Tim, thank you so much for making the time after your beautiful trip to Italy. I love you, and we'll be back in action soon. Sounds good, man. Good to hang with you. Keep the faith, my friends. We will see you 
next time.